Welcome back to Arbitrary and Capricious, podcast of the C. Boyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Adam White. In late 1965, two major public thinkers founded a quarterly magazine that would become the most important policy journal of its era. They called it the public interest. In their opening editorial, the two founders, Irving Kristol and Daniel Bell, conceded that the term the public interest would surely attract skepticism and criticism. They wrote, quote, it's probable that as much mischief has been perpetrated upon the human race in the name of the public interest as in the name of anything else. Indeed, there are even political scientists who, disgusted by the whole business, insist that the phrase be discarded, along with its equivalents, the common good, the common weal, the public welfare, the national interest, etc., it's either misleading or meaningless, they say. There's no such thing as the public interest. There are only private interests. In response to that criticism, they offered their own notion of the public interest. They wrote, quote, The public interest may be presumed to be what men would choose if they saw clearly, thought rationally, acted disinterested, disinterestedly and benevolently. And they added, There's never been a society which has not, in some way, to some extent, guided by this ideal. I thought of this as I prepared for today's conversation. My guest is Philip Howard, founder of an organization called The Common Good, which he describes as, quote, a nonpartisan national coalition dedicated to restoring common sense to America. Mr. Howard is the author of several books on these themes, including The Death of Common Sense, Life Without Lawyers, The Collapse of the Common Good, and The Rule of Nobody. His most recent book is Try Common Sense, Replacing the Failed Ideologies of Right and Left. And he's senior counsel at the law firm of Covington and Burling. Philip, thanks for joining us today. Nice to be with you, Adam. Let me begin with a very simple question. What's the common good and how can society achieve it? Well, the common good, I think, is, a, it, it's, is an ideal uh, from which debate can then uh, circle. Um, you know, I think it's very easy for people to to uh, get too cynical and talk about, well, everybody does things in their self-interest, which, of course, is largely true. But but the arguments ought to center around broader principles, like like the common good. So, so I think uh, when we're talking about how government should work, uh, how schools should work, how hospitals and healthcare should work, how infrastructure should be should be rebuilt, whatever, how campaign finance should work. You know, we should always talk about it, in my view, uh, against the touchstone of, well, what's best for everyone? You know, how do we make schools work well? And so um, I think that's that narrative has gotten lost to a certain extent in identity politics and, and you know, the modern, modern day of people pounding the table for themselves. And thinking about this and going back and reading that old editorial from the public interests debut issue, it always calls to my mind James Madison's approach in the Federalist Papers where he, he said that we would need to be, that, that our passions would be governed by the government and that our reason would govern the government. Just drawing that distinction between people's passions and people's reason and understanding that even though all of us gets caught up in the heat of a political moment with our side or against the other side, that there is this sort of, maybe not objective, but this this higher goal or this common goal that we can all pursue if we were just to allow things to calm down a little bit. Is that, is that 
Is that a fair way of thinking about your project as uh, well? Well, uh, a little bit, but I would say that I would add to that uh, the constitutional idea of an authority structure. Yeah. So you can assume that any given person will argue for something in their self-interest. Uh, but if you have an authority structure above them, um, a traffic cop saying, you know, go, stop or go, then all of a sudden they're at risk for not being able to do what they want to do unless they can convince the traffic cop that what they're saying is somehow reasonable. And, um, it, it, and so what's been lost I do think the copy good has been largely lost in, in, in modern political discourse. But that's because, in large part, we no longer have coherent authority structures. We don't have people saying, the authority is saying, hey, wait a minute, you're acting like a jerk. Or what do you mean you're suing your dry cleaners for $54 million for a lost pair of pants? Uh, that's ridiculous. Case dismissed without prejudice to refiling a small claims court. Somebody with authority has to be able to say that's absurd. And if you don't have the authority structures, if you don't have the um, um, officials being able to use their common sense and, and navigate differing points of view, if judges don't feel they have the authority to get rid of ridiculous lawsuits, then pretty soon you have everybody pounding the table for themselves. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. You, you founded Common Good in 2002, was it? Yes, that's right. So it's 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 not a brand new institution. It's, you you founded it. You've been writing on these things for a long time. It seems to me, in tracking your work, that that it's really sort of taken on a new sense of urgency and energy. Um, you seem to be. Well, we have a few papers that I'll be referring to in a bit, but you're really um, ramping up these calls to draw attention to this. Is that because you see a unique opportunity or a unique need right now, or or something else? Uh, I think there's a unique demand. I, I think we're at a period that feels to me like it might be something like 1917 in St. Petersburg. You know, change is happening. People are taking to the streets. Uh, last time really people took to the streets and, you know, over numerous issues was, was the 1960s. And, uh, and there's this broad sense of alienation, which is borne out by the polls and powerlessness. That um, that really infects all aspects of society. That, you know, that doctors and nurses burn out. Teachers hate the system. Um, uh, Black Lives Matter, you know, thinks that uh, um, cops get away with kids shooting. You know, and they do sometimes get shooting people in the back. You can't fire a bad policeman, and that's true. Mm -hmm. You can't. That's why you can't fire a bad teacher. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's a sense that things have to change. Um, but neither party has any vision of what the change should be. You know, they're both focused on goals, either get rid of government or just add to it. And nobody's looking at the operating system of government, which is really what Common Good does, which is, well, how do we make it work on the ground? How do we make the school work? How do we empower somebody to make a decision in the common good? And so, so I do think there's a moment here where change could happen that uh, hasn't existed really in, since the 1960s. Now, we're recording this at the very beginning of September. And a little over a month ago, uh, in late July, you had an op-ed in USA Today 
And what you just said called to my mind the, the opening line from that op-ed. You wrote, a cultural earthquake is causing jagged fault lines to open across America. And after detailing many of the things that you just detailed now, you trace the root, the root of all this to, to a feeling of powerlessness um, in the, among, the, among the people. And forgive me, I'll just, let me just quote. You say, there's a feeling of powerlessness and quote, the cure to powerlessness is basic. Let people take responsibility again. Give officials and citizens alike goals and guiding principles, and then let other people hold them accountable. And you go on. Why don't you describe a little more of this feeling of powerlessness and what it means to to let the people take responsibility again? Right. So if if you look at uh, people who are angry, people in the streets or not on the streets, there will be a sense that uh, that they feel that they can't make a difference. That. Uh, They've been complaining about the police department in Milwaukee for years. Nobody's done anything about it. You can't do anything about it. They've been complaining about um, um, uh, suffocating red tape in their hospitals for years. Nobody can do anything about it. Um, it, It's it's really, they've been complaining about Washington. You know, two-thirds of Americans hate Washington. They've been complaining about Washington. And they keep electing people who are promising to ch- change it. Uh, uh, Carter, every president since Carter, Obama, change we can believe in, right? I mean, here's a fresh face. Nobody ever heard of the guy the year before. Yeah. Here's a smart guy comes to select the president. And uh, eight years later, eight million people who voted for Obama turned around and voted for Donald Trump, who promised to drain the swamp. And so there's this longing for somebody to make things work, you know, to be practical, to just get things done. And meanwhile, the parties are you know, just they're, they're like in World War One French warfare. They can't get out of the, their, the, the deep ditch they've dug and they're not responding to what people need, which is to be able to wake up in the morning and say, you know, we can make this community work. I'm proud of my schools. I'm proud of this. They can't. Because everybody's trapped in the jungle of red tape. Uh, a little while ago, you referred to the, the Constitution, the basic rules of the road as the operating system. And as anybody with a computer or an iPad or tablet knows, sometimes the, it just stops working the way you need it to. And so you, you, you pull the plug, you hit the power button, you right. reboot it. And so this summer, uh, in, in, in late June, uh, Common Good announced what it called the bipartisan campaign to reboot Government and, and it wrote you wrote government's failures with COVID nineteen and police accountability accountability show the need for overhaul. So we've talked a lot in general about about um, re, about the common goods uh, agenda, um, but what is this? What what is the campaign to reboot government? Well, the idea uh, the, the initial goal is to inject this into the twenty twenty election debates. There was not one question in the Democratic debates how to make government work better. They kept competing on what more government was going to do. As soon as a friend of mine who's a Democrat said, they're like trying to build a 10-story addition on top of a building that's been condemned. (laughs) So so here you have this system that just doesn't work effectively. 30% of the health care dollars goes to administration. That's a million dollars per physician. That's criminal. You know, it's just there are more states uh, that now have more non-instructional personnel than teachers. What are they doing? Well, a lot of them are filling out forms and doing reports. Well, that's criminal. 
Um, and nobody's saying anything about that on either side. So we thought that we would basically, in effect, create a shadow candidacy. And we're rolling out a 16-plank platform, uh, area by area, schools, healthcare, COVID, uh, uh, local control, overhauling Congress. <laughs> we're, we're, we're rolling out a platform as if we were running because we think that these problems all have fairly simple structural solutions, but they involve abandoning the status quo and putting in a new, simpler responsibility-based framework. Now, you mentioned the the, the 16-point platform. Our listeners can, can find this and everything else related to the program at uh, www.commongood.org. Now, of course, we won't have time to go through all 16 of the, the platform planks, but there's uh, we can touch on a couple. And, and one of the first ones in the very beginning, it's, it's point number two, you, you say um, it's time to restore honor and accountability to public service. What's that mean? Um, um, democracy doesn't work unless there's an unbroken chain of accountability. And the, the links in the chain have been broken largely by public unions who negotiated uh, collective bargaining agreements that make it impossible, you know, virtually impossible to, to, to terminate in, in any worker or really to manage them effectively. So the effect of this is not that you're, you have government filled with lousy people, although there will be some. It's that when everybody knows that performance doesn't matter, it's almost impossible to have a culture that's energetic and responsive and honorable because it doesn't matter. You know, it's like letting the air out of the balloon. And so we need to um, completely rebuild the civil service system. Uh, Paul Light is an expert in civil service public administration, and I've been talking about how to do this. And um, and I wrote a paper for you <laughs> uh, at, a, at a conference uh, earlier in the year talking about why collective bargaining in uh, in the federal government is unconstitutional under Article 2. Congress doesn't have the authority to take away the executive's power over his personnel, which is effectively what collective bargaining did. So we... Um, you know, we're talking, we're thinking about where, how are we going to bring either a lawsuit or persuade a president to actually act on that? So that's, that's one. But I'm also working on a constitutional argument for why collective bargaining in the state government is unconstitutional under the federal constitution for basically denying the people in the states the ability to elect people who can manage the government. You've made government dysfunctional. Because you keep electing people and they can't, uh, they can't run a school. They can't run the department. They've given away freebies to, for pensions so that some states like Illinois are beyond bankrupt, completely insolvent. It's, you have this completely irresponsible government because you gave over control to public employees. And so. That has to be broken. You're never going to have a functioning democracy until you can manage manage the people in government. Right, well, we're always glad to talk about uh, Grace at our working papers. And since since you mentioned yours, I'll just tell the listeners 
They can find this on our website in the working papers section. It's from a conference that we had in downtown Washington uh, in early February. I guess the last conference we had publicly before COVID-19. And Philip's paper is titled Restoring Accountability to the Executive Branch. It's, it's uh, working paper 20-02. So again, you can find it on our website. Um, Philip, this is... Um, this is a perennial issue, this issue of the, the struggle between political accountability and professional um, public service. And obviously, there's important constitutional values on both sides of that equation. I think it's possible that you and I might have first encountered each other through some of the work on this back when I was working with um, Paul Verkyle and, and Bill Valdez, of um, formerly of the Senior Executives Association, on sort of an ongoing working group on um, civil service modernization. And I have to admit, um, that working group, um, which is separate from the, the Gray Center, I want to be very clear. Um, that working group was a, was a real eye opener for me in a lot of ways. I, I was really struck by over the course of about a year and a half, these conversations with groups from a, people from a variety of organizations that either, um, you know, think tanks or groups promoting public service and, and, Groups that specialize in bringing expertise and, and modern technology to federal agencies. In some ways, that experience was very, very, it's very uplifting and hopeful experience because you could see how much sort of basic agreement at a general level you can get from even these groups that often disagree on so much. Um, on the other hand, it was very pessimistic because for all of the sort of generalized agreement, there was very, very clear very quickly it became very clear that there was no hope of real concrete action items that would break the deadlocks that we have over the civil service, uh, in part because there's a lot of sort of um, hard and fast interests that have accumulated around the, yes. the system. But also there's just fundamental differences of opinions um, about how to strike the right balance in practice. And that's why I seized upon this is a good example of the challenge because on the one hand, I see that I suspect that you can get a lot of high level agreement over the fact that civil service, um, public service needs to be modernized and reformed, but actually boiling that down into concrete, um, concrete reforms that can get through our political process. I don't know. It seems, it seems very, I'm, I'm very, very pessimistic. So can you, can you, can you, uh, can, can you, can you fix my mood here, Phil? Uh, sure. Uh, well, first of all, the reason I get a rash whenever I go over the Key Bridge in D.C., I live in New York, is because it's impossible to do anything in D.C. I mean, because of the interest. There's an interest, you know, there are 10,000 interest groups. They are all devoted to maintaining the status quo. And everyone alive in D.C. has never seen any significant change. And so their life experience tells them that things cannot change. So, you know, so there, so, so there, so there you are, you know, there's no, uh, in that sense, there's no hope. Uh, but some of the leading political scientists on the nature of how political change happens have joined this campaign for common good that we have. Yeah. Because their, their, uh, studies suggest to them that we are, in fact, nearing a time when, um, when tectonic change happens. You know, that, and it always takes something of a revolution, like the 1960s or the 30s or the progressive era, pressure to build and build and build and then you get change. And, um, uh, most people uh, who I deal with in Washington are, you know, well, how can we persuade the unions that they should change this? Well, the answer is you will never 
persuade the unions that they should change this. You know, they have the upper hand over the people who who are elected to run the government. So you have to beat them. You can't persuade them. And since one party, the Democrats, relies on them as one of their perhaps their main base of, of support, then it's very hard to do this. It's very hard to do this politically, even when the other side's in power, because you need some cooperation. So ultimately, I think on this one particularly, um, uh, the courts will have to pull the rug out from under the the public unions. And as I mentioned before, I you know I think there are there are solid constitutional reasons why the current system effectively has neutered democracy in such a way that it's unconstitutional. Um, but we are nearing a time of change. And as you say, you know, we're hosting these forums every every other week on things like healthcare red tape. I don't get any disagreement from experts in healthcare, the need to remake the system. It's just what you said. But how do you get an impetus for change? Well, my solution there is first you create a vision. And the vision is related not to the goals, it's not Medicare for all, it's to the operating system. It's to a system that actually a human being who's delivering care can deal with instead of spending hours of desk work for every hour with a patient, which is what happens today. You present a vision, and then you start to build support, and when the forces align and everything else is changing, maybe you can replace it. Now, since your program has been so, you know, steadfastly uh, nonpartisan, and again, your most recent book talks about the failed ideologies of both the, the right and the left. I'm going to be very clear here. You know, while we, I picked that one example of 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 uh, civil service and then public sector unions, and you say obviously here on this issue, uh, the Democrats, you know, are particularly tied to public sector unions. Um, that's just one of many, many issues you've been working on, and and there's no shortage of disagreement um, from issue to issue. Um, from either the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. I mean, in one way, what what sort of brings what brings your program to the sort of the, the center is that you do manage to um, pick fights, I suppose, um, yeah. with that, that that would disrupt both um, the Republicans and the Democrats alike. Completely. I mean, it's um, accountability is something that Democrats don't like. Uh, uh, Republicans don't like the idea of giving a government official even provisional authority to make a decision. Yeah. You know, they say, we want detailed rules that prevent any abusive official. How do you prevent abuses by official? Well, there's a problem with that logic, which is that uh, what your views don't matter unless the official can listen to them and respond to them. So the parents' views don't matter on how to run the school if the principal doesn't have any authority to make a change. The same with the teachers. So you, and uh, I had this discussion with the the Nobel laureate Paul Romer. He said, "You know, I'm with you. We need simpler, goal-oriented uh, structures that allow people to use their common sense and stuff. But uh, it's a hard sell to give people discretion in the age of Trump. You know, you know, you can't. Nobody wants to give officials or or businessmen, you know, discretion. And my response to that is we're not talking about discretion. Discretion implies that somebody can do whatever they want. We're talking about responsibility. Responsibility 
is an affirmative duty to meet a defined public goal pursuant to the principles of goals. It's the kind of thing that Holmes and Cardozo and all the great jurists wrote about. And Richard Posner, a great judge, writes about this. It says, someone bounded by principles can't do whatever they want. They'll be overruled in a second, you know, by, by nobody else, of course, you know, if they do. So giving people responsibility is actually the safest way of running a government. There are actually studies of this with corruption. You know, we try to prevent corruption by having, you know, thousand page rule books for procurement and stuff. Of course, all it does is create this thicket where anyone who's cheating can hide and put their thumb on the scale. And one study after another concludes the safest way, the best way to prevent corruption is to create clear lines of authority as to who's making your decision. And then you can go look at their bank account. Right. right. So it's the, com- it's the combination of, of responsibility and accountability, right? And, and, and holding people accountable. Y- yes. And that goes back to the civil service point. You've got right. to be able, you know, and there are many things, there are many problems um, I mean, it's just little things, I mean, that are important in their own way. Like, for example, no teacher in America will put an arm around a crying child. Because who will protect you if somebody says that was an unwanted touching? Now, that is a really weird way to run, you know, uh, an elementary school or kindergarten. And so what's the solution there? The solution is we're not going to allow claims for unwanted touching unless there's you know, uh, uh, clear allegations of, of inappropriate, inappropriate conduct. Yeah. But also going along with that, the people who run the school have to have the authority to terminate people, not because they can prove it. If they think mm, they're, they're acting a little strangely, maybe they shouldn't be around young children. <clears throat> well, they don't have that authority. So in this June 25th release from Common Good, um, the, the, the campaign, the bipartisan campaign to reboot government, you outline a process of what you call spring cleaning commissions. It's a lot like, um, the base relocate, or I, mean, I don't know if it's a lot like, but it reminds me of the, the base relocation right. closings. Um, I know that, um, our, our my friends at, at the Mercatus Center are working on a similar program called the Fresh Start Initiative. Um, in this release, what it really makes clear, again, this is from June of 2020, it says right at the top, government's failures with COVID-19 and police accountability show the need for overhaul. What is it about this particular, what have we learned from this particular moment, these harrowing last six or seven months of the combination of the breakdowns of COVID-19, the debates about um, the failures of, of police, um, of, to hold police accountable? What do we learn from this? It, um you know, that we have this, uh, this disjointed system of government where people who are trying to do what's right, take researchers trying to test for COVID-19 in February, had to submit paperwork. It couldn't be actually by email. They had to submit hard copy to get approvals to do the testing, which took four weeks. So four weeks, four weeks go by where they're waiting to try to contain this virus, you know, it, it, while they go through all the paperwork. So one part of it is just this sense that there's nobody in charge. Nobody can say, oh, yeah, this is an emergency. you got to get going right away. 
So there's that. The, the second is that we create a system that's so weighted toward the individual that no one in authority can actually balance for the common good. So you can't get rid of a bad cop. Can you prove that Derek Chauvin was unsuited for work on the streets? Well, he had 18 or 19 complaints over his career. He, uh, his uh, co-workers found that he was tightly wound. But those are not grounds in which you can dismiss people today. So, you know, after the 60s, we created this kind of obsessive focus on fairness to the individual, and nobody's looking at fairness to the common good. And, you know, so nothing, nothing really, nothing works. And it's all driven by distrust. Um, And you can't test for COVID. You can't fire the cop. You know, it's just, you, you can't give a permit to fix a broken bridge. You can't, you know, you, you, you can't maintain order in the classroom. You name it. Um, the breakdown in trust, it, it seems so crucial. Maybe there's one book that, that everybody ought to be reading right now. It's a, it's a much older book by, well, not that old, just a couple of decades older by Francis Fukuyama. And it's just called right. Trust. And he really details what happens, what breaks down in society when trust breaks down. And these days, I do think it's just the sheer distrust among Americans for one another, for their government. Much of that distrust um, deserved, of course, right? But the, but the question is, how do we rebuild a trust, a, a justly trustful society uh, upon which you can right. build good policy and government? Right. Well, first, uh, the worse things work, the more distrust there is. Right. So, it's a, so it's a downward spiral. You know, the, the words of law have exponentially grown over the last few decades. Distrust. What, what, what took three years, 20 years ago now takes six years. You know, it's just gotten worse because of, because of this inexorable growth. Um, and, and ultimately you need leaders to emerge who have moral authority. That's my problem with Donald Trump is he's, He's quite brilliant at divisiveness and such, but he doesn't, you know, he kind of revels in his absence of moral authority, you know. And so, so, so you need somebody who people trust. The reason why we call for spring cleaning commissions is because um, when you're changing a system, the, the, the horse trading involved in change is literally impossible given the laws of legislative physics. You know, there, there are these 10,000 interest groups. You can't, it would take 10,000 lifetimes to just make one little change, you know, in the system to accommodate them all. So this has always been true. Law always takes a life of its own. You know, it's true in the time of pharaohs and Rome and stuff. And, you know, pretty, you know, things get thicker and thicker and every once in a while you need to clean house. And it's always done the same way. So Justinian appointed, I think it was three judges, and they wrote the draft of what became the Corpus Juris Secundum or whatever, you know, or Civilis. And, and it became the basis of law for, you know, a thousand years. And then uh, Napoleon appointed four judges led by a guy named Portalis. And in five months, those four judges came up with a draft completely remaking every area of law. We're talking about state law, property law, criminal law, tax law, everything in France. 
It was debated for a year in, in, the, in the legislature. Uh, Napoleon presided over half the debates. It was enacted, and it's the basis for law for um, half the civilized world still. So uh, last time it happened in this country was the Uniform Commercial Code, which was created in the 1950s to try to make sense out of the out of the uh, uh, you know 48 states complicated contract laws. You know, so if you wanted to do business throughout the country, you had to have 48 sets of lawyers. So so we created this Uniform Commercial Code, and there's this credibility that comes along with a group of people who are not seeking power; they're just making a proposal for how to remake something. Uh, and that's the way base closing commissions work. They, they, you know, it's very politically difficult to decide which army bases to close because all those jobs will go away. So they give it to an independent group. It's impossible to do politically. Clearly, this country needs that. I mean, if you ask me what I my ambition was, my ambition is I want to get appointed to the commission. You know, I just don't think it's that hard to fix the bureaucracy and health care to... To, to make schools so that they're both accountable, but they don't have, they're not crushed by, you know, by, by, by red tape and, and law. I just don't think it's that hard to create a framework that lets people take responsibility again. That's what Americans are dying for. They just want to wake up in the morning and make a difference and make stuff work and make practical choices. You know, instead, everybody's pounding the table with their legal demands. I have to admit, even in areas where I care, where I'd like to see some reform, um, I always get a little cautious when, you know, we start hearkening back to, to sort of revolutionary moments that, that make massive change, right? Um, I mean, take infrastructure, for example. I, you know, I used to work on energy infrastructure back when I was in private practice. It's something I've written about, studied. And the fact is, infrastructure development in this country is totally stifled by, by red tape. And it's really right. astonishing. At the same time, I remember not long ago, Almost been eight, eight years ago or thereabouts, Thomas Friedman did a column in the New York Times where he said, you know, it's too bad we're not like the Chinese. They can build massive dams, you know, with the snap of a fingers. And you say, well, wait, wait a second. They, they have a very, they're able to do that for a reason. And it's reasons that we wouldn't necessarily like in the United States. There's something to be said for the sort of the slow checks and balances of government and, and steadiness and, and, and moderate, you know, measured reform. So, right. So, well, yeah, it's a matter of degree, though. Yeah. You, you, but you know, you, you, uh, well, the, the, you know, infrastructure. You know, I've written a lot about. I yeah, you have. Yeah. Before it called two years, not ten years. That both parties have embraced. You know, yeah. where I calculated the cost of delay in in, in infrastructure permitting. Um, the answer isn't to go back to the days of Robert Moses or to bring you know Chinese dictator here. Yeah. Um, the answer is to not to get rid of the environmental protection laws. I actually think environmental review is a very good thing, but it shouldn't be thousands of pages. Even in the most complex, complex project, you can, you know, newspaper liberal newspaper reporters will talk about it in a thousand words. Well, surely a hundred pages is enough, yeah. you know, or to. To, to describe what the big issues are with the pipeline or the dam or whatever it is. You don't have to overturn every pebble. And, and giving, but that requires giving someone the authority to make a judgment about, okay, what's important here? And it doesn't mean they can do whatever they want because they still have the principles of the law and there's still a court 
they could oversee that. But the notion that we have six, eight, ten year approval process for permitting is, it, you know, it's a form of mental illness. I mean, it's like a societal mental illness. I mean, it, 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 you know, other countries do it in no more than two years. It should generally be a year or two. You, you have the disclosure. You have a public debate, transparent. You've elected people to make decisions. That's why you elected them. Let them make the decisions. And if you don't like the decisions, elect somebody else. The infrastructure example, you know, it gets back to my own roots as, a, as an energy infrastructure lawyer. Remember many, many years ago, um, I was having lunch with a friend of mine. He actually clerked for Judge Skelly Wright on the D.C. Circuit. Um, the year that Judge Wright in the D.C. Circuit wrote the opinion in the Calvert Cliffs case, that was the right. case. Right. That, um, horrible, really, horrible case. Yeah. You know, so, so um, as I was describing the sorts of projects I was working on, my friend said to me, that reminds me of a case that my judge, the judge Wright heard when I was a clerk. And I thought, and it just clicked. I realized, I said, wait a second, you mean the Calvert Clips case? And he said, yeah, that was it, the, the, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission case. I said, you were there for that case? He said, yes. He said, so how did it all work out? And I, I reached to open my sort of big lawyer briefcase and I pulled out, I, I had with me a few, st- a few volumes of a environmental impact statement and I dropped them on the table with a thud and said, well, it's, it's become the Adam White full employment plan. I'm not sure it's the best way to run a country. Um, and, and it's, it is amazing the way that the, the National Environmental Policy Act, which is a well-intentioned law. And I think it's a law that if reformed, you know, can do a lot of good. Um, it's just these, Procedural, these well-intentioned procedural frameworks that are written in very, very open-ended terms, they really can, um, they can serve, they can come to serve purposes far different from the ones they are intended. And since I'm name dropping, um, papers from the Gray Center, this is the point where I should mention that, um, two years ago, James Coleman, a law professor at Southern Methodist, wrote a great paper for us called Pipelines and Power Lines, uh, Building the Energy Transport Future. Uh, where he really walked through the the issues with the National Environmental Policy Act. But yeah, I, it's really it, it's really important. I mean, for example, the transmission lines in this country waste about six percent of the electricity, equivalent to two hundred coal burning power plants. They're rickety. They caused I forget the, the number in, in our two years, not ten years report, something like four hundred billion dollars of damage a year and shutdowns when they you know you get a big yeah. storm come through and the and the and the, and the power the, the old hundred-year-old power poles fall over, that sort of thing. Um, it's really important to uh, have government processes be practical, and that actually is—it's—it's it's more. You can't legislate practicality. You know, you can legislate against practicality. You can have a thousand-page rule book and stuff, or you can have a Skelly Wright decision. That basically lets anybody sue if you didn't take a hard look because some pebble wasn't overturned. Yeah. You know, so you can let, you can give too much power to people who shouldn't have power, not the people who've been elected to make decisions. But ultimately, you can't make people, you can't create any law that makes people be sensible. You have to create a framework that allows them to be sensible and to hold them accountable. And, uh, the, the, the framework that other countries have for environmental review, greener countries in the U.S., Germany, for example, allow officials to make decisions. They allow judges to review them. And it all happens within like 12 to 15 months. You know, it's just not, you know, we're talking about, you know, 
drilling platforms in the North Sea, uh, uh, tunnels underneath the city of Leipzig. I mean, we're talking about big projects. They focus on what's important. Uh, people argue about it. Uh, if they have a disagreement that's legal, it goes to a court. But it all gets resolved, and it gets a permit or not. I wonder how. I wonder how much the change we've seen over the last century in America on this is, is a cultural change, right? Uh, 80, 90 years ago, it was the, the political progressives, the New Deal era, really, that was building things, building infrastructure, changing the environment to serve, um, to serve, uh, human needs. I'm a, I'm a fan of, of Woody Guthrie and, and the old folk singer. And I've got his Columbia River albums where he was writing songs for the, for the Works Progress Administration, I think, um, you know, celebrating these, the, the Cooley Dam and everything on the Columbia River. And there's one song where he says, you know, to the Columbia River, he says, you know, River, while you're rambling, won't you do some work for us? And right. so there was, for a long time, it was a, a progressive value to, to really build. And, you know, just last year, we were celebrating the 50th anniversary of, of the Apollo mission to the moon and, and all these things that could be done. And now government, instead of taking risks, really is in the business of preventing people from taking risks. But I don't, I don't blame that on government so much. I think that's more a cultural change in America that for a variety of reasons, we've just become, again, for better and for worse, a much more risk averse society. I don't know how we can right. change that. Well, um, you change it with authority, people having authority that say, um, this is how we're going to do it and it may work out and may not. You know, this is, and, uh, and you, and when it begins to work out somewhat, then you begin to build trust. Yeah. But it's not going to spontaneously work out. I mean, this is all the, basically the problem of the 1960s. We woke up to all these abuses. We decided that the main, the main thing to do is to prevent government from making mistakes. We're going to prevent pollution. We're going to prevent discrimination. We're going to prevent any unfairness to any employee. That's when the public is power. Um, and we've been in government immediately started getting bogged down in red tape. Jimmy Carter had a really articulate platform about this. I mean, Jimmy Carter is probably the most articulate president about the, the, the dysfunction of the red tape day, but it started happening in the 1970s as a result of the And it's just only gotten, um, it's, um, it can't, it won't fix itself. You have to go back. You have to abandon a command and control, mindless compliance model of governing to a responsibility and accountability. We're going to let you run the school. We're going to let you make this decision about infrastructure. But if we don't like it, you're going to get fired, you know, sort of thing. And, and let people start making the choices again. It's just, you know, the, we're we're stuck in this. It, it's like it's almost a form of self-strangulation. We're so scared of somebody doing something wrong that we won't let anybody do anything right. That's what happened with COVID. We wouldn't let any of these researchers go out and do the testing and research because yeah. we're scared that they might violate someone's privacy. I mean, you know, you can, you, you can think of anything that might go wrong. That's a good way of putting it. We're scared stiff, and the stiffness, the rigidity is the uh, the ossification of just the basic administration of, of, yeah. of government. So, so, um, again, common good is, is, is rolling out this 16 plank platform, a variety of issues. 
For those who, are, who want to follow up, because we can't possibly do justice to it all here, um, go to commongood.org. We'll go out on this. Are, are there any sort of upcoming discussions, uh, issues that you're flagging that you want to you leave readers with? Oh, wow. You know, we would um, um, be a lot of things coming up. Uh, you know, we're trying to get the debate going about rebooting the operating system. We want people to talk about the operating system. You know, there's a lot to argue about the goals. Should we deregulate? Should we, you know, whatever. But let's talk about whatever government does, have an operating system that makes it work. And so we're looking for ideas. How could it work better? I'm engaged in an active discussion with some of the leading healthcare experts in the country about what's the right role of technology? How can you make electronic health records human of a human scale instead of, you know, instead of 500 boxes, you know, and uh, it's, it, 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 it should be a time of invention. So I think there's a lot of room for improvement in literally every, every area of society. And we are starting to get a little pickup. I mean, we're, you know, we were endorsed the other day out of the blue by some regional newspaper, the Jacksonville paper that basically said, I never talked to it. Nobody talked to them. They had this long editorial to say, what's wrong with this country can't be fixed unless we basically reboot the operating system. And here's what Philip Howard is doing. We've got to spring clean. Just out of the blue. Uh, uh, I have a long um, essay coming out in the Yale Law Journal forum called um, From Progressivism to Paralysis. It goes through the history of how the progressive movement 100 years ago, little over 100, turned into the paralytic state and what the false assumptions that underlie it. So we want to create uh, an intellectual debate uh, at the Mercatus Center and others, you know, where people are really thinking about this and they know how it works, like you. And we need to have start having discussions that that dare to imagine that it could be different. You know, that you could actually reinvent a system that works. And that's that's probably the biggest hurdle is that getting over the cynicism of people who say, look, it's never changed. Why would you even talk about it? Well, again, our guest today has been Philip Howard. He's the author of, of many books, including most recently, Try Common Sense, Replacing the Failed Ideologies of Right and Left. And he's the founder of the organization, The Common Good. Philip, thanks for joining us today. Great to be with you, Adam. And, and thanks to our listeners, as always, for joining us. Please join us again for the next episode of Arbitrary and Capricious. <laughs>